0: And happy Friday. This is the week in review. My name is Jack Insley. I'm the executive producer here, and I am joined, as always, by the one and only executive director of Heritage Radio Network, Erin Fairbanks.
1: (laughs) I am up at fighting weight over here in the studio and excited to kick off another week in review.
0: Oh, oh, sorry. So tell me what fighting orient me you're at fighting weight what are we talking about
1: <laughs> well fi- fighting weight just means basically like i'm i'm ready to go uh you know as, as when a fighter fighters getting ready for a fight one of the things you have to do first and foremost is make weight so usually the day of or the day before the fight depending on kind of what platform you're fighting on you have to step on the scale and and hit your mark and if you don't things are no good. You're not ready. The fight gets canceled. You lose the money. So um, it's like kind of the first step in your journey of of being a fighter.
0: Wow. So uh, does that have anything to do with the last meal you ate?
1: Well, kind of. Kind of. So I was out in San Francisco last week for the Fancy Food um, Show and the Good Food Awards. And one of my big takeaways from those two kind of huge and – uh, pretty fun food shows uh, was protein, man. Protein is gonna be the new gluten-free in 2016. I could not believe how many like beef jerkies I tasted, but also just like every type of protein enhanced product that you can think of and and milk made out of every type of grain or thing you could think of. But Really this like kind of obsession with protein, which got me thinking about our friends at Paradise Locker Meats um, out in Trimble, Missouri. And they're delicious beef sticks, which is my last great bite. Um, there's something nice about eating like a, a tasty meat snack that, uh, it, you know, as I'm like kind of in training and looking for something quick and yummy. They really like hit the mark and I was I was thinking about it a lot, actually, because so much of the jerky I tasted was so bad. So that's my last great bite.
0: Yeah, bad jerky is bad, isn't it?
1: It's it. Well, it's just like it's like sandpapery and mealy, and you're just like I have like I feel bad. I'm like looking at the like earnest hipster dude behind the counter who's like, "This is my product," and I don't. I'm like, did you taste this? Because
0: you're like, doing it isn't really enough.
1: No, no, no. And I think that's the thing, too. It's like um, I love innovation. I love all the kind of startups and the like spirit and culture around um, food production. But I also really love like, multi-generation family businesses that have been doing it forever and make a delicious thing and are just like, really the pros. Um, so shout out to Paradise Locker Meats and their beef sticks
0: Well, speaking of old generations who've been doing it forever, um, I, I have to give a shout out. As, as I mentioned on the last week in review, I was headed to New Orleans and my goodness it was my head spinning from all the food and drink that I got to enjoy in New Orleans. Um, but something that really stood out to me was Upper Line Restaurant. So she, Joanne Clevenger is kind of the, uh, the woman in charge, the woman running the show. Not the chef, but it's been her place for, I think, 30 years and Before that, she owned music venues on Bourbon Street where all the celebrities would come. So she's a real, like, fixture down there and a real uh, incredible personality. And um, they have what they call the Taste of New Orleans dinner, which is uh, basically all these little small portions where you just blast through all these kind of classic New Orleans dishes. And it was really just the perfect way for me to get a little bit of a taste of everything. So there's gumbo, turtle soup, fried green tomatoes, shrimp remoulade, and um, you know, uh, what else? I forget what else was there. I think a little a little bit of jambalaya as well. Anyway, the turtle soup was was awesome. That's always been something that I've wanted to try and is not on many menus out here. I was surprised at how clovey it was.
1: The winter amazing. spices making an appearance.
0: Oh, well, yeah, many appearances. And, of course, topped off with Sherry. And she was just saying, like, yep, this is exactly how it would taste 100 years ago. This is, like, two speck. So wow. I'm a, I'm always a fan of that. That's that's always fun. So thanks, Joanne Clevenger, for that, <laughs> for that experience. Um, so with that, I think we should go to the studio and check out some clips from this week. Of my clips over here. So, uh, you know, we're back in full swing, 2016. I feel like we've got our, our, our feet under us now, you know. Um, programming is strong. But I do want to start with something that comes from an event that we attended yesterday. This is the third year in a row that we have been a media partner at plant o which is like a horticulture symposium held at the Brooklyn Botanical Garden uh, in conjunction with the Metro Hort Group. It's actually their 20th year. Isn't
1: that crazy? That's awesome. I think also... Is there a better place to be after a huge snowstorm than the Brooklyn Botanicals?
0: So cool. Yeah, and it's been warm, so it's like not quite frozen over, you know? Like, it's really thin, slushy ice on all the lakes there and the little, you know, it, it was a really magical uh, sight to see. But it's just such a cool, weird plant comic-con almost. It's like all the plant <laughs> nerds. It's, <laughs> it's like overwhelming. And and I'm always surprised by how many people like, like us there are there are a lot of young people there um, and a lot of really old people. It's like a really cool cross-section. And um, the symposiums are always great. And this year, one of the keynotes was this guy, Thomas Rayner, who is a landscape architect, a teacher, and a writer. He's designed landscapes for the Capitol grounds, the U.S. Capitol, the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial, and the New York Botanical Garden. So definitely knows his stuff. And he gave a talk on planting in a post-wild world. And I will let him kind of speak for himself here. I thought it was a really powerful ending to his presentation.
2: I want to pose a question to you that my five-year-old asks me every single day. Why not, Daddy? Why not put meadows on top of our gas stations? Why not have meadows snaking through skyscrapers? You know, what does it say that the High Line is the most visited site in Manhattan, a site that is a, a relic of a spontaneously occurring urban meadow is the most visited site in New York. What does it say about what we want? Why not have elevated roads covered with connected forest? And why not construct wetlands, not chemical treatment plants, to purify our drinking water? All of these things are possible. All of these things are happening. But we'll only reach this vision once we understand that nature is not this pristine thing that exists apart from us.
0: Yeah, food for thought, huh?
1: Well, I think, you know, we we get to hear about these types of topics every week from the ladies who host We Dig Plants, Carmen and Alice, and really looking at the world from a botanical point of view. It's like never my instinct, honestly, to, I always like appreciate when someone has greened my environment, but it like never occurs to me that it's a thing that is missing. So I, I have to say I feel super thankful that there are people out there doing this work and, and making New York just like more like lush and lovely, and I love that he calls out the High Line, um, which is like such a funky space. I, I definitely like walked the High Line with some farm kids a couple years ago, and they they were like, "Man, you city folks just you're kind of weird there," because the entire like uh design of that space is really a lot of native grasses and plants, and the looking to kind of create this feeling of of wildness in the city and we just are like soaking it up. So definitely like would love to see more of that. Definitely love to hear from Carmen and Alice um, on these topics every week on We Dig Plants. Such a good show.
0: And they are like and they are like awesome mini celebrities at this thing, you know, with the We Dig Plants podcast. They're definitely known in the circle, which is awesome. So out to Carmen and Alice. Um, the next clip that I want to play is from The Front Burner with uh, Jimmy and Andrew. And that's one of our new shows here that's been doing really well out the gate. I know, Aaron, you loved the episode they did yesterday.
1: Yeah, they had a kind of what's uh, the relationship status essentially between critics and restaurants. It was a jam-packed show. Uh, we had Sam Sifton. We had Ryan Sutton from Eater. We had Hannah Raskin from down in Charleston. We had uh, Drew Nearpoint from the Myriad Group, um, Alex Stupak, um, Dave Waltuck. I mean, wow. it was like kind of the kind of the 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 the, the, the big guns in here chatting about this relationship. So, and that that episode is live on our website now. Definitely, definitely take a listen.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So on a previous episode, they actually spoke with Frank Crispo, who is a chef at Crispo, which is uh, I think, believe in Fourteenth Street. Um, by there in the meatpacking district. And he's kind of just talking about, you know, what what happens when somebody has a bad meal at your restaurant, which is a timely topic. So let's listen to that clip real quick.
3: Um, so I believe that, you know, we have this tremendous stress of all day of performing and, and, and showing, looking for that gratification. That one customer has that bad evening. It ruins it. We're like, I go home and sometimes and I'll hear something, and I go, oh, my God, and I just can't get to sleep. I can't I just start thinking about it, I start thinking about it so, The next day I come in like a horse, I come like a bull, and I start fixing everything and i you know and I make up I put up the wall, I start welding stuff and putting everything up to that's not going to happen again, you know, but that's uh, you know that's me
0: <laughs> I, I love that um and it definitely got me thinking about the the per se debacle that we kind of talked about on last time the last week in review that we did and as you saw probably Aaron, you know thomas keller came out and said something similar right
1: well basically responding that like hey we work hard and we're we're like bummed about this and and we're gonna do better i think um the the thing i love about the front burner is this is the kind of conversation you're getting you're hearing really directly from chefs and people working in the food space and because Andrew and Jimmy have such an insider perspective I think you're just getting insights that I'm not seeing anywhere else and it's funny the you know kind of comparison between theater and restaurant work is something that has been coming up a ton on that show and I know when I was cooking you know you walk in the door and it's just it's like a hundred percent go the entire time you're there you're like measuring out your day in like three to five minute increments of like how fast can I do the prep and how fast can I like get this ready and make it perfect and like you have to be in like such an intense strategic mode and then you like take a moment and then service starts and it's a whole other kind of energy and I think that's what he's really speaking to the kind of performance aspect of like curtain is up you've like done the work that you've you know, you were going to do, you hit your mark, you don't hit your mark, but it's go time. There's nowhere to hide. Like people are in and let's do this. And I love the energy of like, I've definitely been on the receiving end of the chef coming in and being like, things are going to (laughs) change and having a passion based on, you know, something that came out of the previous night's service notes. And that's kind of how it works. I feel like diners have a ton of power as they should to kind of drive the energy and what's happening in kitchens.
0: Well put. And I'll say I've definitely experienced the same before as a DJ. You hear somebody outside of your gig like, the music was okay. You're like, I will not rest.
1: (laughs) I will not rest until the next gig. You will dance. Exactly.
0: Find me a Rihanna remix. Anyway, uh, the last clip we want to play here is uh, from our evolutionary series, which um, we haven't been releasing as many, but they are all still as good. And this is... uh, the the really the only real like post-produced uh, glossed over thing that we're putting out here and um aaron basically sits down and chats with some of the real leaders and as the name implies evolutionaries in this industry kind of talks to them about their their life their journey their perspective what 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 the scene was like when they were coming up and um, the the latest one that we're finishing here is David Kinch, who I'm sure you all know from Manresa, kind of like a chef's chef. Anybody in the industry always like shouts him out as somebody that really influenced them. And um, in this little clip, he kind of talks a, a bit about like the pluses and minuses of being a cook now. So, you know, somebody just getting their legs under them now as a cook in 2016 versus what it was like for him. Because obviously now we have the Internet and that changes a lot. So here's what David Kinch had to say there.
2: I think going online as a young cook, when you are still unformed in many ways, I think it's nice to see photographs, but you start seeing too many 20-course menus from Scandinavia or Spain or Japan over and over and over again. To me, it's a lot of jetsam, kind of polluting and getting in the way, and it clouds your own ability to, to create your own style, which is an evolutionary step. I mean cooks cut cooks imitate then they assimilate and then they innovate and that's a natural progression that has to happen and sometimes being exposed to all that data and all that information it just gets in the way
1: i loved sitting down with david he i, I feel like you could kind of boil down the entire interview to him being like just like kind of shut up and work and like have fun with the food. I definitely had to look up Flotsam, flotsam and Jetsam. Um, I, I was not familiar with those terms. It's like one of those things you feel like you've heard before. Um, but kind of interesting, you know, Jetsam basically is stuff on a boat that you throw off to lighten the load. Um, when when times are when times are hard or maybe there's a hole or you're sinking or for some reason you need to lighten the load, Jetsam is things that kind of accidentally fall into the water um and just really kind of two different sides of a of a destruction coin that is looking at you know keeping you afloat which is something that you know david as someone who's been in the business for coming up on four decades has a lot of experience and i think that's the really exciting thing about the evolutionary series is nobody was successful overnight basically you bust ass for 10 to 15 years and then maybe you get a little bit of a foothold. And, and then you, if you're lucky, you get to kind of keep doing what you're doing. Um, but I think it's some, there's something really powerful and important for kind of young cooks and young professionals to see in this. That like it's really about the work at the end of the day. You just got to show up and, and keep pushing towards your, your kind of life thesis, your dream, whatever that might be
0: life thesis i love that well put aaron um and that takes us out of the studio and moves us into the breakdown sorry i'm like playing around with all these voice modulations i'm like the breakdown (laughs) just can't. can't help it um so this is the breakdown where we, we jump into a, a topic with an important person usually. And this week's guest is no exception, a very important person. Erin, maybe you want to introduce the guest we have this week for the breakdown.
1: Well, we are going to be joined by Rob Newton. Rob is the chef owner of Nightingale 9, Wilma Jean, and Smith Canteen. Basically taking over a section of Carroll Gardens in uh, Brooklyn. He is a a Southern man um, and a man of like many talents and interests. You might say something of a a, of a Dos Equis kind of situation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, Rob, you know, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you on.
3: I'm pleased to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: So we wanted to connect with you today about Charleston Food and Wine. I know as chefs, these days it really seems like every other day there's some kind of festival or event or conference and I know that you have made regular appearances over the year down in Charleston and I'm wondering if you can give us a sense of why this is a space that is right for you as a New York chef.
3: I mean you're exactly right and um, I don't want to sound you know disparaging in any way but there are so many events it's, it's really difficult to decide which one you want to go to and which one's best for you and which one has the most interest for any peripheral kind of thing you want to do. So, and like you said, I've been doing a lot of these over the last couple of years. Um, and I, I just kind of feel like I want to cherry pick the ones that are a little bit more special to me. Um, maybe something I've done before or something that really peaks matches like something in New Orleans, um, you know, maybe that's coming up. And then Charleston is certainly in that category. I've done it before. I did two, two different events last year. Um, I'm doing two this year, and it's close to New York. It's in the South. It's one of the hottest food cities in the South. It's a really big and well-organized event. It's a festival, as you said, and it goes on for several days. It's a little overwhelming, quite frankly. (laughs) Um, So this year, um, Carrie, my business partner and girlfriend, uh, who you know, um, we just talked it over, and She's got a lot going on, I have a lot going on, and I just made a conscious decision to do a little bit fewer of these things. And we'll, this is a very long way of saying that this is one of the few events I'm going to do this year because it's really exciting. I really, really enjoy it. There's a lot of people there that I know. It's in the South, which I always love going back to the South. It's close. It's organized. Um, it's, it's well worth uh, any... Any blizzards or any trouble you might have getting there, uh, it's well worth it. It's a good
1: event. Uh, well, we're super excited too. So it's going to be March 2nd through the 6th, obviously down in Charleston. You can get kind of the full lineup of events. Bring a pen and paper, it's a long list at charlestonfoodandwine.com. Um, we're going to be doing a radio and heritage radio network pop up on um, Friday and Saturday down at the festival, kind of interviewing chefs and personalities who are going to be there talking with folks who are attending. Um, I'm really excited, and and so folks can look forward to that programming. One of the interesting things about the festival, to me, is that a lot of the money that gets raised um, after festival expenses are covered goes to support the next generation of culinary leaders and chefs. And and to date, I think they've raised over $300,000 that they use for Scholarships and promotion of kind of up and coming folks in the culinary industry, which is super cool.
0: Yeah, and- yeah,
3: that's fantastic. I wasn't even fully aware of, of how much actually went uh, for those purposes. That that more people should know about that. That's fantastic. Everybody wins in that
0: scenario. Yeah, for sure. And that's been kind of like a big focus of, um, of our pre-event coverage. And I think a bit of how we'll be covering on, on the scene there, you know, talking a lot about the different generations and how the traditions carry over. Because the South is definitely a place of tradition and of, of knowledge sharing. So one of the segments we've been um, that we're, we want to do with some of the chefs who will be participating. And Rob, you'll be the first one to kind of tackle this. <laughs> is uh, we're right. asking some chefs to kind of form a letter to the unborn chef. So, you know, if you were going to write down messages in a letter to pass along to a chef who's going to rise to prominence well after you're gone, what wisdom would you share with them?
3: Man, that is such a mouthful. I think it's going to be hard to be succinct. I think I would have two pieces of, I mean, I have a lot of advice, but the two things come to mind in sort of two different channels. If you want to be a chef and... You know, cook and be accomplished, and uh, you know, practice your craft and learn about what you do. Just keep your mouth shut and keep your head down, and be a good person. Do your work, come early, stay late, work hard. Party you know, party a little bit, but that's not really the focus of being a cook. The the days of doing blow in the bathroom and you know, drinking until six in the morning, and that's just over with. The, the profession is too demanding. It always has been demanding, but it's even more demanding now and more precise. And luckily, it's more of a profession than it was 20 years ago when I got started, you know? And my advice would be to live a balanced life and take your profession seriously um, and just keep working at it. Because even 20 years later, I don't, I mean, I have three places and I still don't really know what the hell I'm doing. So you just got to keep working at it. Uh, and then the second bit of advice is for a chef who wants to own their own place, which is luckily enough, uh, I own three with Carrie, as I mentioned. And I sometimes talk about the chef-owner myth, and that could be a whole new show for you guys. Because when you're the chef and the owner and you don't have a lot of money behind you in terms of, like, you know, a whole arsenal of investors and some corporate umbrella hanging over you, which I'm not being disparaging. I'm, I think that would be a wonderful thing in certain contexts. But when you're the chef and the owner, it's not about your tweezers and putting the perfect piece of basil on something. It's also about when the toilet overflows and when the grease trap backs up and when you have a blizzard and you know, I was out shoveling snow in front of Smith Canteen and when you gotta fire people and when you have a sexual harassment claim. That is so far removed from a beautiful fried chicken sandwich that Woman Jean does very well, or you know, the Asian Vietnamese inflected food that we do at night and 9 night. The whole chef-owner thing is a wonderful, wonderful thing, but there's so much more to it than, you know, wiping your plate 25 times a night during service. That's important, too, but to the unborn chef-owner, uh, get ready for a whole lot more than garnishing plates and taking pictures. It's, it's. And I don't say that like I have any regrets. It's just a lot more encompassing than when you open your first restaurant, you're like, oh, I'm going to have 40 seats. This is going to be amazing, and it is amazing. But there's so much more to it that doesn't involve food that I don't think most people are prepared for until they do it.
1: Um, and mic drop. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, well, you set the bar uh, for that segment. I'm trying to be dramatic. I'm just trying to keep it real because that's the truth.
1: Yeah, no. And well, okay. So before we let like, go, Chef, what I do want to hear from you... Um, and I, I feel like that really resonates, like, living with balance and really understanding, like, r- the running of a business is different than, the, the like, making food. Um, but for folks who maybe haven't had a chance to come out and hit up some of your spots, you know, what is the thing that you're getting excited about January? I know both of your spots have a market-driven focus, not the best time of year for that. But what are you doing for folks who want something in the January-February timeframe? What should we come out and make sure to try?
3: Whew, man, it is tough, especially if you try to, you know, have good produce that is at the very least from America. You know, and I don't have any problems with Mexico. I think it's beautiful cuisine, but some of the food that comes out of there has a lot more chemicals than we allow to be used here. So we try to steer away from that. Having said all that, uh, I think there's a couple things. We're excited about root vegetables. because You have to be excited about root vegetables in the wintertime in the Northeast. And uh, I've recently expanded the... the I would say the the cuisine interest that I'm focusing on in Nightingale 9 has expanded beyond Vietnam. And I'm messing around with, you know, things from southern China that I've traveled to and had and spent time in the country and really excited about Yunnan cuisine in particular is, is amazing. And time I've spent in Burma, um, I think that's an amazing cuisine that is largely not really known and really diverse and dynamic and exciting. So we have a curry uh, that, you know, Surprisingly enough, is uh, based on root vegetables. Uh, there's about five different veg in that. There's some daikon and sweet potatoes, cauliflower, and things that we can get in the wintertime that are good. And it's it has fermented tea leaves and Burmese flavors and a special type of curry that I got turned uh, a special type of turmeric that I got turned on to it in Burma called the lepi. So that's exciting. And then um, everything else is really about citrus and apples and other things that you can get in the wintertime that have a little sweetness, and uh, some bright flavors, which are really hard to come by in the wintertime. So, you know, I have an apple salad with some, some curry flavors, uh, red curry, not not like curry powder. And then um, I'm doing a dessert, which I'm kind of playing with desserts these days because I don't really have a lot of experience that in the past, a lot of experience with that in the past, and I'm just trying to mess around. So I'm doing a riff on an old-school Southern dessert called Chess Pie where we have – a bunch of lime and lime zets and then some satsumas which is a beautiful type of mandarin which is my, one of my favorites and then we're pairing that with it so it's a couple of different kinds of citrus in that dish Cane syrup from Louisiana so those are a couple of things I'm excited about it's really pretty limited here in the winter time as three of us know
1: but
3: (laughs) that's part of being a chef you know you gotta make you gotta make do with what you have
1: yeah and and i have to say i got to enjoy a couple of those dishes that you mentioned uh recently and would definitely recommend folks make the trek um out to brooklyn rob thank you so much for joining us
3: man thanks for calling me guys i really love talking to you guys and happy to help out thanks for having
0: me yeah you're the man rob thank you so much
3: all right man you guys have a good day stay warm
0: well, that was awesome. Uh, way to kick off the letter to the unborn chef. So uh, we're, wrapping, we're wrapping up here. We're nearing the end. And you know what that means. If you've listened to this, it's time for Big Ups. I love that every time we play this theme song, I just imagine Joe Galarraga choking himself with a mic cable on stage. And like, yeah, this is a, the band Big Ups. And uh, two of the members were formerly engineers at Heritage Radio Network. So thank you for the theme song, Big Ups. And with Big Ups, we like to big up uh, people, places, things, whatever, stuff that we're liking. It's just time for Jack and Aaron to big some people up. Uh, I guess I'll kick it off if you don't mind. Yeah, I want to big up Damon Bolte because um, this Wednesday not only did he have Dave Wondrich on his show, and if you don't know who Dave Wondrich is, um, I love this, the the Times calls him a living iPod of drink lore and recipes, or, if you prefer, a crazy bearded Civil War general. So, he's like the world's foremost expert on the history of the American cocktail, you know, a, a, a guru for bartenders, and he was on Damon's show, and then he guest bartended at Damon's bar immediately after. So, I could just, like, I've never seen Damon so geeked out and looking like such a fan, you know, and Everybody at the bar was just so in awe. Even Daniel Krieger, the photographer and part owner of Grand Army, is like, you know, I've had Dave Wondrous punches. I've made his recipes a million times, but having the guy serve me a drink, I mean, that was just tops. So uh, lucky I I was lucky enough to to head there as well, and I was just so happy for Damon. I've never seen the guy look like more of a kid. So big ups, Damon. Congrats, buddy.
1: (laughs) It's so funny that that is your big ups because my big ups is – not drinking.
0: <laughs> nice.
1: <laughs> I have to say, you know, January is a month where a lot of folks kind of like take the take a moment to like reflect, uh, kick off that you're right, maybe recover a little bit from the holiday season and embark on uh, a week, a month, uh, a couple of days uh, of not drinking, and I, I, I gotta say, big ups for that. I think switching up your diet, um, changing things around, it really is like this interesting opportunity to um, bring new things into your life and like reassess the the choices that you're making. And I say this as a tri- you know tried and true like lover and imbiber of of many fine beverages, but. Um, I do really appreciate the kind of perspective and energy that not drinking kind of brings to the table, if you will. So my big ups, opposite of Jack's, is for not drinking. Try it. Try it for a weekend. You don't have to go crazy. Um, but you might be, might be surprised. And, and I don't know. There's like good stuff out there.
0: And if you're coming to Heritage Radio with a bottle of something as a gift, you can just give that right over to me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no strength to you. I've done the. I've done the sober January in years past, and I actually always love it. Um, this year wasn't the year, but you know, there there are other things to explore.
1: Well, and to be fair, I'm doing like a sober week, so I mean, I, you know, sure, I, sure. I, I feel like that's like also one of the benefits of getting older is you're kind of like set, you know, bite off like smaller chunks, set smaller goals that give you energy to kind of set bigger goals, um, and and kind of keep that ball rolling, but. Yeah, that's what I got
0: Amen Well, a pleasure as always, Aaron And uh, listeners, if you like this Everything is on HeritageRadioNetwork.org And you'll find additional resources and, And much more to explore This is really just scratching the surface, this 25 minutes. But head over to the website. Check out all the wonderful resources we have there. Um, We we put this out every week, right before the weekend. So you've got your weekend listening, and you can get all caught up and and ready for Monday. So thank you for listening. And if there's anything you ever want us to cover, want us to stop covering, whatever, uh, Heritage underscore Radio on Twitter, Heritage Radio Network on Facebook, info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Find us, talk to us, get involved. Until next time. We'll see you soon.